Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13. The, the whole passage is a, a really powerful passage, but t- today we're just going to be looking at the first section, verses 13 to 17, although I'll probably read the whole section. We turn to God's Word this morning, and it's an important passage, it's a crucial passage, um, particularly for me as a church planter, somebody seeking to, to plant a church, to build a church. The whole section, as I said, is, is 13 to 20, and, and there's things that are said here in this passage that are going to be reiterated in just two, past two chapters later in Matthew 18. But it's crucial that we get the first half of it right. Who do we say that Jesus is? The reason why it's crucial is because out of the confession of faith in Christ and who he is, Jesus then introduces in the New Testament the very first teaching on the church. Who we say Jesus is influences how we do church. And what a person really thinks about Jesus can be discerned by seeing how they approach their relationship with the church. Before we jump into this, I'd like to remind you, Hebrews 4.12 makes this powerful statement that the Word of God is alive, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is piercing to the division of soul and spirit. And it makes this powerful statement. The ESV says it's a discerner of the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. The Greek word there is kritikos, from which we get our, our modern-day English word critic, And so, in another sense, in another way of looking at that passage, sometimes we come to God's Word, we come to Jesus Himself, and we want to sort of evaluate Him and judge Him on our standards. We think it's right and fair to do that. But the Word of God says that when we come to Christ, when we come to the Word, when we come to Him to evaluate Him, it's really the opposite As we approach the Word sometimes to be critics of it, the truth is the Word is criticizing us. And that will become apparent on the final day. God's Word is a criticos, a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We come to a passage, particularly here in Matthew Matthew 16, 13 to 17, that is really probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, most favorite passage in all of the scriptures, because at the end of the day, this is what it all boils down to. Who do you say that Jesus is? The question is posed from the Lord himself to us. Who do you say that I am? And how we answer that question has eternal ramifications. So read with me, we'll we'll read the text, and then I'm going to go ahead and read all the way to verse 20, but we're just focusing on verses 13 to 17. We'll read the text, we'll pray and ask God to open our eyes to see and to hear, and then we'll get to work. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people, this is people in the general sense, who do do people say that I am? What's the buzz? What's the opinion? Let's take an opinion poll. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's Christ's favorite reference for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist. This is Matthew 16, you'll recall. John got killed a few chapters previous to this. So John is dead. 
But some have the suspicion that you, Jesus, are John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? What is your take on this? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a powerful statement given the surroundings. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petria, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, the you there is plural, so in Texas idiom, I will give y'all the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever y'all loose or let loose on earth shall have already been let loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He is the Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you, and we thank you so much, Father, for sending the Christ. We thank you so much, Lord, for sending the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one, the only one that could do the work that you needed to have done in order to have us as your children. He achieved the ultimate task. He accomplished the ultimate goal. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is both good yet not safe. He loves us yet challenges us. He takes care of us yet He rules over us. He is our sovereign one. We thank you for Him, Lord. We thank you for giving Him to us. Father, I pray that as we come to this text this morning, as we are all of us asking in our own hearts at some point in time or another, Who is this man? I pray, God, that we would know with absolute certainty who he is and that we would know that truth so convincingly and have that conviction so tightly held in our hearts that we could share that with our neighbors, that they might come to see who he is as he really is, Lord. So, God, we pray that your spirit would shine upon this text. We pray that you would Open our eyes to see this, to understand it. And we pray, God, you would help our belief and our faith in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Close, but no cigar. Have you ever wondered where that expression comes from? We say it all the time, but do you ever really stop to to ask yourself, when we say close, but no cigar, What are we really, really saying? Most of us get the idea that it's an expression of almost victory, almost success, but ultimately, no matter how close you came, you didn't quite come close enough, and therefore you don't get a cigar? What is that? Why would I want a cigar? Some of us might enjoy cigars, but for those of us who are more aware of the dangers of smoking, we might wonder what kind of a reward is smoking a cigar. 
This expression is a cliche that is an historical anomaly. Historical in the sense that there's no record of its first usage. In fact, if you Google it or if you do any kind of research on the expression, the earliest reference to it that you will find is in the Cincinnati Gazette dating to 1921. There is an article in this Gazette that is reporting on the bowling scores of several bowlers who were bowling in Cincinnati at the time, and it makes this statement, Lawrence Gibson, what a name, Lawrence, I, I just thought that was an interesting name, and it reports his bowling scores, 300, which is a perfect score, 225, which is not so good, and then on the third round, something tragic must have happened, I don't know, he must have twisted his wrist or something, but the third round... 170, followed by the expression, close, but no cigar. I looked at this expression this week because I was just curious to know what it, where it came from, and historians speculate that it was so popular, so well known, so well understood, that by the time it starts showing up in print, it's just accepted that everyone knows what is being referenced there. The earliest printed reference of it is the Cincinnati Gazette in the early 1920s, but most historians will say that it actually stems to the turn of the century, sometime around 1899, 1900, in that time frame, in which carnivals would offer as prizes for their nefariously difficult, if not completely impossible, carnival games a cigar. Whereas today, when we take our children to the carnival, we put them on the rides, they go around on these death traps that are loosely held together by bolts and wires, we'll also take them to these games where you throw the little ring on the bottle and it's almost impossible, it's supposed to be impossible, the idea is that you'll give them all your money and they will give you very little in exchange for that. One of the prizes that was offered, whereas today they give you giant stuffed animals, in the day they gave you cigars. And the prizes were not for children, they were for mom and dad which is really the way it should be today, since we're the ones paying all of the money. Close, but no cigar. The carnival workers would cry out, you were close, but no cigar. Would you like to try again? We come to this text, and the reason why I start there is because lots of people in Jesus' day had a lot of really good ideas about who he is, who he might be. But in the words of the 19th and 20th century, we should say about these people that they are close, but no cigar. Close, but no cigar. Look at the setting. Jesus, he's getting away for a season with his disciples. You'll recall he had the encounter with the Pharisees. They asked him to show him a sign. He said, I'm not going to show you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. He then escapes away. It says they sailed across the sea to Magadan or Magdali is the different, uh, whether it's Aramaic or Greek, how it's transliterated, where we know they probably picked up Mary Magdalene. The last name there isn't an actual last name. It's a reference to where she's from. From there, they head north to the district of Caesarea Philippi. It is the northernmost point in Jesus' travels. It's named after Caesar. It's a town that is in the foothills of Mount Hermon. It is in the far north of Israel. And it is a town that is, as it's higher up in elevation, it's cooler, it's breezier, it's 
uh, got a gentle breeze. It's similar to those of us who live down here in the valley of Kamloops. If we want to get away for a little bit of a cooler time, we might go up the hill to Logan Lake, where the temperatures are always a little bit cooler and chillier. It's the same here for these guys. They escape from the lowlands of Galilee, from the oppressive heat. They get away for a season for a retreat. They go north, and they go up in elevation to the foothills, the base of Mount Hermon. And it is there in this remarkable city devoted entirely to the worship of Caesar and all things Greek and Roman, as they're making their way down the footpaths and the trails, aluminum shadowed and covered over probably in the shade of temples and statues devoted to the Greek god Pan, devoted to Caesar worship and In the midst of all of these idols, in the midst of all of these false temples, in the midst of this Mecca that is devoted to the worship of a man named Caesar, in the midst of all of this false worship, as Jesus is leading his disciples along, perhaps in the shade of one of these temples, as he maybe sat down to take a rest, his disciples gathering near him, he leans forward and then he poses the question in a city dotted and littered with statues devoted to all forms of idols, a city in which there is probably not one statue devoted to him, not one statue, not one temple devoted to the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. In the midst of all of this, he leans forward and he says, who do people say that I am? Now, who do people today say that Jesus is? Think of your neighbors. Think of your family members. Think of your friends. What do they say about Jesus? Many scholars, many philosophers, many great thinkers have toyed with the idea of Jesus. Anybody who has done any serious literary, philosophical type of work has felt impressed upon by the current events, the motion of history, in fact, to offer some comment upon Christ, whether he is God or whether he is just a good man, a good moral teacher. In fact, if you survey all of the literature, almost everyone will safely say that he's a great moral teacher, he's the epitome of Christian virtue, he is the essence of what it means to be good, he is a great thinker, He is a great theologian, all kinds of compliments, all kinds of suggestions, some even going so far as to say if we could all just live like Jesus, there would be no problems in the world. Some going so far as to say if we could all just be like Jesus, we would actually experience utopia on this earth. Everyone offering an opinion, all of them very good, very nice sounding opinions, all of them very close but no cigar. And it's no different from what people in Jesus' day were saying. Jesus asks them the question, a question which you would do well to ask your neighbors, your loved ones, your friends. Who do people say that Jesus is? Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And they respond, and look at what they say. Some speculate that you are John the Baptist, the same John that was just killed just a few chapters back for testifying about you, for testifying about righteousness, for upholding the standards of God. Some say that you're him. John is dead. John has been executed. And anyone with a surface knowledge, anyone with just a basic understanding of the situation would know that John and Jesus lived at the same time, born within a short period of each other. 
So it's sort of an impractical response. How could Jesus be John? What they are theorizing is that John was this great prophetic figure that came and was preaching about the coming kingdom of God, preaching repentance, make your hearts ready, prepare straight paths for the Lord. John was cut down, and they speculate that out of nowhere this Jesus figure has arrived, that somehow, in some way, it is John the Baptist resurrected. That's the first good guess. Close, but no cigar. Second good guess is that Jesus is, and they say, Elisha. Now, it's interesting because the Old Testament predicts that Elisha will come before the Messiah, but Elisha has been dead for centuries now. So the second guess is, well, you are in point of fact the forerunner of the Messiah. You are in point of fact the guy who is to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, but you yourself are not the Messiah. Instead, you're a guy who's been dead for years and years and centuries and centuries. You are him come back from the dead. Remember, nobody would have known what Elisha looked like. And so you have this guy out preaching and doing miracles and feeding the tens, if not twenty thousands of people. Who is this man? He could be Elisha. You'll recall Elisha, similar to John the Baptist, he is the epitome of the fire and brimstone prophet for warning of God's judgment, calling people to repentance, telling people that there will be consequences. Some say that you're him, that you're Elisha. Close. Jesus is a fiery preacher on occasion, but no cigar. He's not Elisha. Others say you're Jeremiah, which is a bit of a puzzling suggestion. Jeremiah in contradistinction to John the Baptist or Elisha, he's not a fiery preacher. We know him as the weeping preacher. He was a fellow that preached but was just so heartbroken over the sin of his nation, over the sin of his people, that he cried out to God and he was always feeling sorry for himself and feeling sorry for the people he was attempting to bring back to a faithful walk with God. Not a fire and brimstone preacher. Also not closely associated with the Messiah. And this is a puzzling sort of reference. There's literature that is popular in this day and age, literature which, is, literature which is popular in the first century, literature which is still utilized by the Roman Catholic Church today. Books that we don't normally associate, that we dare not consider scripture, books known as the Apocrypha, books that are accepted by the Roman Catholic Church as scripture. These are books that would have dated to the intertestamental period, in particular, there's two books in, in the Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, which are accepted by Roman Catholics. These books, if you reference these books, and it's important to note that Jesus himself never quoted from these books. None of the early church fathers ever quoted from these books. And as you get a little bit later on to the patristics, they flat out denied these as not being Scripture because they taught things which were clearly contradictory to Scripture. However, these are historical documents which are still well known by the Jews of Jesus' day. And for those of us who are involved with the Roman Catholic Church, we would be familiar with some of these passages as well. Now, some of these passages in the Apocrypha, passages, again, which would have been well known to Jews in the first century, suggest that Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is the forerunner who is to come before the Christ. So in a similar vein to Elisha, in a similar vein to John the Baptist, 
They're saying that Jesus is Jeremiah, a prophet resurrected from the dead to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of the God, of the kingdom of God, or one of the other prophets. Notice what it says, how, how they round it off. They say that it could be one of the prophets, which would basically open it up to anybody and everybody at this point. You know, it could be John the Baptist, you could be Elisha, you could be Jeremiah, really any of those guys in the Old Testament at this point. You know, we will accept you as any of them. Now, what all these guys have in common is they're all dead. Most of them have been dead for centuries. And somehow, in some way, whether it's a scriptural reference or just a popular literary reference, they're all expected to be forerunners of the kingdom of God, but not not God himself. In other words, what everyone is saying, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some are saying, you're a fire and brimstone preacher who's to come before the coming of God, or you're a weeping prophet who's to come before the coming of the kingdom of God, or you're any one of the other prophets who told and talked about the coming of the kingdom of God, but you yourself are not the king. In every instance, there's something that they're saying that is right, but they are not right. There is something that they're saying that is true, but they're ultimately missing the point. They are close, close, but no cigar. And Jesus asked that question because here's where the disciples, those who follow Jesus, have to distinguish themselves from the world. They're living in a context. They've got friends, they've got family members, they've got cousins, close relatives. They live at a time in which expectation of the coming Messiah is at its peak. Everybody's looking for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Don't miss the significance of this question. This passage is recorded in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. It's recorded in the same timeline, the same chronological sequence of events. And John is a little different. John isn't so concerned with the, the chronological sequence of events. He's dealing with particular themes. John reports on the fact that there is the feeding of the 5,000, and then he moves on. He doesn't address the fact that Jesus did this miracle not once, but twice, the feeding of the 5,000, followed by the feeding of the 4,000. He deals with the feeding of the 5,000. And if you recall, John adds some details to that miracle which are absent in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John points out that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they want to make him their king. They want to make him the Messiah. That's good. Jesus' response to them in that moment is... If you want life, you will have to drink my blood and eat my flesh, which is the ultimate offense to a Jew, which has been raised his whole life, trained and taught that whatever you do, you don't drink people's blood and you don't eat their flesh. Now, Jesus is God. Nothing suddenly occurred to him. He didn't have an idea that this is maybe the way I should say something, and then after the fact, think, mm, probably shouldn't have said it that way. 
He was sinless. He was perfect. He was flawless in everything I did, which means when he offers forth the teaching with no explanation that if you want life, you have to drink his blood and eat his flesh, he knows he's offending them. He knows he is sticking it to them in such a way that it is going to be very difficult for them to understand what he is saying. Yet, that's how he presents it, and their response, the crowd's response, is exactly what he anticipates. This is a difficult teaching. Who can understand it? And they leave. Remember, he's gathered together a group of 5,000 men besides women and children, a group that may have numbered anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people. He has the world's first megachurch. They are coming out. He is feeding them. He is taking care of them. And in one sermon, in one message, he takes the world's first megachurch and he kills it. And here's the reason. They liked him for the things that he offered them. They liked him for the interesting teachings that he provided them. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, will he be your king? Will you do what he says no matter how difficult, no matter how complex, no matter how perplexing it is? Will you still walk with him and honor him even when it doesn't make sense? At that point, they said, we're done. Now, this is Galilee and this is 15,000 people roundabout. That's where these guys are from. And John offers the detail. Jesus turns to Peter, he turns to the 12, and he says, do you guys also want to leave? And here's what the world is saying. I'm a nice guy. They want to make me a king. They even like the fact that I'm able to provide food with the snap of my fingers. But they won't Listen to me when I teach about the hard things. Are you guys offended as well? And Peter's response to that is, where would we go? Now, he doesn't understand it any better than anyone else in the crowd that day. His statement is, where would we go, Lord? For we have come to know and believe that you alone have the words of life. Then you have the feeding of the 4,000. Then you have the encounter with the Pharisees. And now Jesus has pulled these guys aside. Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that I am? And at the end of the day, these people liked him. They liked his teaching. But they wouldn't stick with him when he put it to them in hard terms. They wouldn't stick it with him when he framed it in such a way that it would undoubtedly offend them. Who do people say that I am? Well, they're coming at you with their own ideas of who they think you are. Okay, but now who do you say that I am? And this is the pivotal question for all of us. Anybody that comes to faith in Jesus, if you've ever had the privilege of leading anyone to faith in Christ, you know that when they come to faith, they have very little understanding. And at the end of the day, they still, when they come to faith with limited information and virtually no understanding, will say, when the question is posed, who is Jesus? 
He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And it assumes an element of danger. Because if you have limited information, you don't really know what the future holds. You can't accurately predict where this Jesus is going to take you tomorrow or 10 years from now. You can't fully understand or comprehend what walking with Jesus will mean for you 30, 40, 50 years from now. You cannot possibly predict how the culture is going to shift, which way society is going to move, or what kinds of ramifications that's going to have on you as a believer if you continue to hold to Jesus. You can't foresee any of that. And you know you can't foresee any of that which means that at any point in time in which anyone says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, whatever that might mean, it is two things. It is the ultimate act of trust. It is the ultimate expression of surrender. And the second thing is this, ultimately, it is something that the Father has done in your heart. There is no other explanation for it. When a person gets saved, gives their life to the Lord, follows through with baptism, you're witnessing miracle. Jesus' statement, Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, who do people say I am? Your cousins, your relatives, your neighbors, your best friends that you grew up with, those people I just intentionally offended a few days ago, the 15,000 that were following me that I chased away, those people, who do they say I am? They don't say you're the Christ. They say you're everything up to and including the forerunner of Messiah, but not Messiah. They're close, but no cigar. Who do you say I am? And that's the question for all of us. You don't need to fully understand it. And your neighbors, your relatives, your loved ones, coworkers, colleagues, they don't need to fully understand it either. But they have to face the question because this is the question that matters for anything else. It is the determining factor for all of other life's decisions. Who do you say Jesus is? They have to be asked that question. They have to be presented with that choice. Peter is following Jesus. He's been with him, we think, for about two years at this point. He's seen everything. He's heard everything. He already has some ideas because just a few days ago when Jesus chased away the crowd of the 5,000, do you also want to leave? No, because I've come to know and believe that you alone have the words of life. Still close, but not good enough. Peter, yes, I have words of life. Who do you say I am? Even for Peter, knowing that Jesus has the words of life, it's close, but if it was sufficient, why would a few days or a few weeks later, Jesus pull him aside in seclusion in a city filled with pagan idols and say, tell me now, who am I? I conclude from that that God is not worshipped, nor is he honored, nor is he glorified by ignorance or half-truths. Being close to the right answer is not good enough. You must have the right answer. 
God is only honored and he is only worshiped and he is only glorified. When we correctly identify Christ and we see that he himself, the Father, is intimately involved in revealing that truth. Jesus makes the statement, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of John, or Simon, son of Jonah. You're blessed. Why? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Note that word, underline it in your Bible, revealed. In the margin, you might want to make the comment, revelation. This revelation, this revealing, didn't come from human effort. Excuse me. Well, where did it come from? It came from my Father who is in heaven. People will not come to faith in Christ because of their own choice to do so. People will not come to faith in Christ as an act of human will. People will not be saved because they decide one day that they want to be saved. What is necessary for a person to be saved is for them to receive a revelation from the Father. They will not be saved apart from the testimony of the church, apart from the testimony of the scriptures, apart from God speaking through the church or through the scriptures about the truth of his son. You do not get saved if you do not identify Jesus correctly, and you will not, you cannot identify Jesus correctly unless you get help. That's what the passage is saying. It is impossible for any of us in this room, and if you will stop to think about it, it is impossible if you will think about the moment you came into faith in Christ, you never got there without asking a few questions. You never got there without someone opening a Bible and reading it to you. You never were going to get there unless someone told you about it. We have Christmas celebrated in this nation and all across North America and all across most of the world every year. People are celebrating peace on earth, goodwill to men. It sounds nice. It's close. And yet, if all that was necessary was a holiday for people to clue into the fact that Jesus is Lord and that they should surrender their lives to Him, we would have way more people attending churches as a result of just Christmas every year. Christmas isn't good enough. Take Easter. Well, we're getting very specific then. We're talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ. You know, Easter is celebrated all across North America, across most of Europe, across much of the world. And yet Easter, a celebration, a holiday in many countries of the resurrection of Christ, has been drowned out by the Easter bunny. People who are inclined to actually research the Christian roots of the holiday, knowing this is still not enough. Nobody's going to come to faith in Christ because of Christmas or because of Easter. Think about your neighbor. Think about your loved one. Think about your coworker. Have you ever posed the question to them? Who do you say Jesus is? Have you ever told them 
that if they don't get that question right, that they're missing out on the blessing of God. If you don't pose that question to them, and if you don't help them with the truth of Scripture, they can't make it. Jesus posed this question to guys who were very committed religious people. Twelve ardent, devoted followers. And he still posed the question to them because they still had to decide for themselves who Jesus is. Have you decided who Jesus is for you? I understand that from some of us in this room, we may not have all the facts. We may not know everything. And indeed, there are many things that perplex us, that confuse us, that we are not even sure we understand at this point in time. You don't need to know all of it to make a decision about who Jesus is. If you just glance down a little further to verse 21, Jesus begins to talk about his death and resurrection. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you think Peter has it all figured out? No way. He's made this great confession, and then he's just told Jesus that he can't die for the sins of the world. Not fully comprehending it. None of us fully understood it. And guess what? None of your friends fully will understand it either. But the truth is they don't need to understand it. They do need to answer the question. One of the greatest things in my life, the greatest thing in my life, one of the greatest things is walking with this church, walking with brothers and sisters in the Lord who love the Lord and who are surrendered to him and who are committed to following him. There's a a friendship and a family that is there in a willingness to be totally surrendered to the Lord that I have not been able to find anywhere. Lots of companies and organizations try to reduplicate the fellowship that we have here in the church take Starbucks, for example. You go there for the ambience and the atmosphere. Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to create a connecting place for you. They're trying to be like the church, okay? We have that here, but only as each of us individually answers the question about who Jesus is. One of the greatest joys in my life is sitting down with many of you in life groups, in your homes for dinner, and talking and discussing about your friends and your family, people you care about, people you love, your efforts to tell them about Jesus, to pose the question to them, who do they say Jesus is? That is something that is so sweet in the Father's eyes. And I know it's sweet in his eyes because it's the reason he sent his son. So when we have those conversations, I know, I know from the word of God that he is honored by those conversations, 
but I also know just in my own personal life and in what I've observed in many of you in your lives, when we have those conversations, God is in that moment through our fellowship, through the calling He has placed on us, changing us into something more beautiful. That is a wonderful and sweet thing. There's a love and a care that is there, and I have felt it and sensed it, and I know many of you have as well. You're in the hospital, your child is sick. Oh no, what do I do? You just post it on the Facebook prayer page, and immediately there's like 40 people harassing you, saying, I can bring meals, I can look after your kids. They're calling you on the phone, you know, and you're like in the ER, you're like, I can't talk right now, I can't talk right now. And the phone is already like buzzing off the hook because this group of people comes together to love you, to meet your every need. That fellowship, that family, I am convinced that our commitment to each other starts from the realization that we will live with each other forever, for all of an eternity. That desire to be good to each other, that desire to nurture each other, to take care of each other, to meet each other's needs, that desire to help each other grow, that desire to work together to exalt Christ, all of that comes from something that was given to us. Given to us. The moment we said, Jesus is the Christ. This title, Christ, like the expression, close but no cigar, what does it really mean? We use it all the time. This title, Messiah, we use it all the time, but what does it really mean? All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, Jeremiah, or any of the other minor prophets, Elisha, John the Baptist, all of them spoke of one who would come. Only one guy can do what we all need. You can't do it no matter how nice of a person you are. You can't do it no matter how good of a person you are. There is only one guy who can do what we need to have done. He is given this title, the anointed one, the chosen one, the holy one. All of those are various ways of rendering this Greek word Christos or Christ. When we use the word Christos or when we use the Hebrew word Messiah, which is Messiah, those are terms that mean there is just one, only one, who can do what needs to be done. A chosen one, a holy one. And when we say Messiah, when we say Christ, it's not his last name. It's a reference to who he is. He is the only one who can die on the cross, who can bear the penalty for our sins, who can save us for eternity. All of us now, with limited information, limited knowledge, we come to Christ, we say, I don't know anything about anything, but I'm going to trust in Him. And it unlocks a whole door, a world that we never experienced before, where people love you, where people care for you, where they come together, they nurture you. Because life isn't the same anymore. In fact, it's endless. The 
the quality as well as the quantity is radically altered. And when you appreciate that, you know that you've got all the time in the world. There's no more hustle, there's no more stress, there's no more rushing. Whatever curves may come, you know the chosen one. When you identify him as the chosen one, the holy one, when you say Jesus is the Christ, you identify him as the one who can save you from your sin. And in that identification, it opens a door of possibilities that you never had before. It bestows gifts upon you that you didn't think possible. You're now able to dream dreams that were meaningless thoughts, things that never even entered into your mind because of who you say Jesus is. If you go to the carnival and you lose, and they say close but no cigar, well, you're missing out on a cancer stick. It's no great loss. But if you approach Jesus and you say he's just a good man, he's just a great moral teacher, or he's even a prophet come back from the dead, close, but what you have lost is infinite and eternal joy at the right hand of the Father, something you can begin to taste and experience here and now in the present. As we leave here today, don't be close but no cigar. Win the prize. Identify Jesus for who he really is. Let's bow for a word of prayer.